This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. We are back in full swing with season three of No Ceilings, and we had a fantastic article go up this morning, Tuesday morning. And so, of course, I had to have the author of that fantastic article on for today's episode. So I'm here with Stephen Kalaspi. Stephen, how are you doing this fine evening? And Nick, the uh, the season has officially kicked off for me because I'm now on the Deep Dive show, so... I'm glad that you asked me to be on, man. And I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I really had fun with the piece that you referenced. And, uh, you know, I hope that a lot of the people that read it, um, you know, kind of took some things away. Uh, you know, it was kind of a callback to a piece I did last season. And I was excited to bring it back again this year. I'm willing to bet that we had you on for that article last year as well, because I tend to love <laughs> talking about these sort of more conceptual articles on here. So, Let's dive right into your article, looking for what works. And so mm -hmm. basically the gist of the article is you sort of, you know, rather than looking at individual positions, you sort of looked at the archetypes of players that have been successful, you know, the past few years. So you did do this article last year. So I guess that's part of why you're repeating it this season. But I'm curious sort of yeah. why you wanted to start off this no ceiling season with this piece. I think it's important to remember before we get too kind of caught up in the weeds and almost kind of serve as like a precursor to uh, look back at recent draft history and just kind of see what NBA teams are looking for, what types of player types get drafted, however high, uh, what, what player types are kind of becoming more in vogue, what's kind of phasing out. And I went with the past five draft classes, so it's one, it's a nice clean number. Everybody, you know, loves the number five. You know, it's a it's a pretty, pretty fun number. I mean, basketball starting five, whatever. And then I think also it kind of lets us know in short memory in kind of like a short encapsulation that uh, you know, trends kind of phase in and out, what stays consistent, what's more important now for NBA teams and things like that. And I think uh, you know, as the time that we're recording this. Last night, we kind of saw that with one of the player types that I'm sure we're going to be talking about here soon that kind of took over the Twitter universe. And I think that looking at players such as, you know, a Chet Holmgren and a Victor Wimbanyama and looking at some of the players that we have in this year's draft class, it I think it serves as a good kind of, uh, you know, tone setter for what we should be valuing when we're when we're looking at these prospects. Yeah, I think five years is sort of an interesting timeline to look at because, it tends to be the sort of range where, you know, something shows up in the NBA and then you start seeing prospects that look like that player down the line. Like, you know, this is, you know, a bit of a longer timeline example and a bit of a shoddy job and I'm going to go for it anyway. You know, Steph Curry obviously revolutionized the point guard position and the NBA as a whole. And, you know, for a few years, you know, there's no one who played like Steph Curry in the pipeline because there's no one who had played like that before. Right. But, you know, mm -hmm. five years down the line, you see a Trey Young pop up. Right. And, you know, it's not to the same level as Steph Curry, but a similar sort of principle of, OK, you know, this is what the NBA is looking for. And over the course of, you know, five, 10 year timeline. But I think five years is the right kind of timeline because 10 years is a bit of a long lag. Right. But with five years, yeah. it's like you see this sort of thing show up in the NBA. And then you start seeing players, you know, at the lower levels, college or high school, you know, players who come along and start playing in a similar sort of way, you know, five years down the line, you start seeing this player show up in the NBA. Yeah, too. And I think it's it's also fun looking at the five year draft history because it kind of gives you an idea of um, not only how these players are valued and how frequently they come in and out. But you also get to look back at some of the names that were the most successful in that player archetype, too, right? So 
Uh, the furthest back that I went in this year's piece was 2018. And one of the first players that I kind of call back to is Luka Doncic for one of these archetypes, right? And it's crazy to think that it feels like he's been in the a- NBA for so long, but he's risen to the top in in only a five-year frame. So that's also kind of like a uh, another good reminder to have that some of these some of these prospects within a certain amount of years could rise up to be some of the faces of the NBA today. And it's extremely valuable, especially when you get players on like these rookie scale contracts with, you know, uh, bird rights eventually and restricted free agency, things of that nature. How how heavily some NBA teams are looking for players such as like a Luka Doncic as like a total package score, for example. You mean that NBA teams aren't looking for the next Marvin Bagley? Is that, is that what you're trying to tell me here? Unfortunately not. You know, I... I was really big on Marvin Bagley, and I feel like a lot of us in the draft community always like say that. I don't think it's been draft season yet until someone says, you know, I, I really like Marvin Bagley in the process. I feel like, no offense, Nick, but at the time, I don't think that your beloved Sacramento Kings were the best place for him to go and get better. I think if the Kings were to draft him this year, probably a lot more success uh, in, in his NBA future. But yeah, not so much your Marvin Bagley's in, in today's NBA anymore. Apologies to the Bagley family, but now that the Kings are actually a playoff team, my masochistic Kings energy has to get out somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, you got to get it where you can, man. You know, and we don't know how long it's going to last. Me being a Rams fan in the NFL, I know that all too well. You know, it, here, to, here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> all right, so let's get started with the first category that you've got here. So, Again, as you say in the piece, you're ranking them in terms of sort of the volume that they're presented with. So the lowest volume we have here, the malleable bigs category, and you teased it up top, but you have Chet Holmgren in this category who was blowing up Twitter last night, as you mentioned. The first example you have here, Jaron Jackson Jr., so from that 2018 class as well, and then Mm -hmm. Evan Mobley. And the biggest, you know, prospect in the 2024 class that sort of fits into this archetype is someone whose season has already started in the NBL in Alex Sar. So why did you sort of put him in this category? Well, and and before we get too far into it, I want to let people know that rookies in the NBA, I, I kind of omit their first season to be grouped in here. So if you don't hear Victor Wimbanyama, uh, it's not because I don't like him or not because he's not a malleable big. It's just personal thing that I do. I don't include the current year's rookie class right so that's why you didn't see chet last season that's why you're not going to see victor in the article this season but you're your first aggregator steven hates victor Wembanyama. i cannot stand him he's a bust you know he he's not he's not going to do so well in the nba hopefully everybody knows i'm being tongue-in-cheek but if not i i'm going to laugh at you for laughing at me so there's that well the um, aggregators might not <laughs> <laughs> aggregators are going to aggregate nick you can't you can't there stop you them there it is but <laughs> but Alex Sar, I, I think, obviously is a, is a hand-in-glove fit for this player type. And I talk about it in the article that a lot of these players, I, I think Nick Claxton is also a malleable big because offensively these, these players are going to do different things. I don't think it's going to be a shock to anybody when I say that, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s offensive game is way different than that of a Chet Holmgren. You're not necessarily going to run an offense through a Jaron Jackson Jr. You're probably not going to expect him to average, you know, three and a half, maybe four assists. You know, you're, you're not going to get that type of offensive outing from him. But what all of these malleable bigs do have in common, Nick, is that they are really, really good on the defensive side of the ball. You know, look at what Evan Mobley was able to do uh, last season. And then, you know, coming into this season, have such high expectations, you know, um, a player that is probably made a few uh, franchises mad that they passed up on him. You know, and and again, for Chet Holmgren, you know, he sat out a year coming into the, his first ever preseason game uh, or first preseason game for this season, I should say, and is setting the world on fire. You know, I was comparing him and Victor Wimbanyama to the next, uh, you know, uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And I know that that's a uh, lauded praise, but, you know, it could happen. But as far as Alex Sargos, the offensive game, I think, resembles more that of, like, say, a Jaron Jackson Jr., where he's going to be kind of like a trailing uh, big man, three-point shooter, a uh, hustle points rebounder, pick-and-pop type of threat. Still pretty strong, can still do some interior finishing work, but he's really going to be able to space the floor, and that's immensely valuable. And then defensively, kind of the same thing as maybe a Jaron Jackson Jr., premier shot blocker, 
great switch guy, you know, good good on the perimeter, good in the paint, can play next to a more, say, traditional big like that of a Steven Adams or something like that. And they could still give you minutes at the five. You know, hopefully the foul rate isn't as high as uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., but still he was a defensive player of the year, so it can't be all that bad with his defensive skill set, I would say. Uh, but that's that's kind of why I have Alex R in that, Nick, is that the offense is kind of different than some of these other players, but a tremendously valuable big man that can get from one side of the court to another in really in a really, really short amount of time. Yeah, all of these categories are fascinating, but this valuable bigs category in particular, I want to stay with for a minute because sure. you know, if we're talking about five-year cycles, right? I mean, it's a little over five years now, but, you know, <laughs> this is going from the era when, you know, there were there were big men at the at the top of the draft who were just, you know, stationary pain players. And it looked like, oh, the big man's mm-hmm. starting to get phased out of the NBA, right? You know, we're seeing you know, all these all these kinds of takes. And yet over the past few years, you know, sort of starting with Jaron Jackson Jr., we're seeing just because you're seven feet tall doesn't mean you have to be a pure post player, right? And we went, you know, in a very short period of time from is this the death of the big man? You know, are we just going to go to an NBA where everybody's six, nine and switches across positions to, you know, Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic are MVPs, right? You know, it's not, it's not sort of the halcyon days of big men are purely stationed in the paint and, you know, aren't expected to do anything else. Right. And that's kind of the point of this category is, you know, yeah, you, you know, if you're a seven foot plotter, maybe there isn't much of a place for you in the NBA anymore, but if you're seven one and come in like Alex Sar does, then, you know, there's definitely a place for you. Yeah, and I think the the thing to look at with these malleable bigs is that you are starting to get more of what we would call a traditional uh, NBA front court lineup, Nick, where you are getting two big sized, you know, NBA players within the same lineup, but the skill set is vastly different, right? You know, we we grew up with you know like Tim Duncan and the Admiral, you know, but they occupied similar spaces on the court where these malleable bigs allow you to still have, you know, say like a lob threat an under the rim big man, but you're also able to space the floor with these malleable bigs. And they offer you even more positional versatility because you can slide them down to the five for spot minutes. Um, you know, and especially while guys are still getting their strength up, you know, like look at what Victor Wembanyama is doing with the Spurs playing alongside a traditional big, but Ultimately, down the line, you would say due to his size, he's going to be giving his team interesting minutes at the five and playing like a five out type lineup, more skill ball than, say, a uh, you know traditional lineup. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the difference between Jaleel Okafor going third in 2015 and Jaron Jackson Jr. going two spots behind Marvin Bagley and having a much more successful career. And, you know, Marvin Bagley and Julia Okafor are extremely different as bigs. I mean, the athleticism difference alone between Bagley and Okafor is pretty sizable, but you know, ultimately the thing with Bagley is the Kings gave him a questionable amount of minutes at the three, right. And it turns out he just didn't really have the ball skills or the shooting to be that kind of player. And he wasn't, you know, anywhere near good enough of a rim protector to be a full-time five. So, you know, there's, been a lot of discussion of tweeners in the past and there's sort of been a movement of sort of three, four being the tweener range to more of like the four or five, where it's like, if you can't sort of slide between those two big positions, there's fewer and fewer places for you in the NBA. And, you know, Julia Lokofor was sort of the, not really the death of the traditional center, right? Because again, we've had centers winning MVP three years in a row now, but you know, this sort of, archetype that existed, you know, this is less than a decade ago, right? Julia Okafor was the 2015 draft, you know, and that's why I mm-hmm. think this five-year cycle is really fascinating to look at because, you know, just looking at the NBA from five years ago, it's pretty different to what it is now, but five years before that, and it's, you know, a dramatically different league. Yeah, it, it's a short amount of time and a long amount of time. And I think what's important to remember, um, you know, last season, I didn't have malleable bigs on there, even though we did have you know, a Jaron Jackson and, and uh, you know, an Evan Mobley in the league. But now what we're starting to see is, you know, Chet Holmgren is now on this list. Next season, Victor Wembanyama is going to be on this list and, you know, and so on and so forth. We're starting to see these guys become more in vogue. And I would say that the thing I would p- point out, Nick, is that based on this player type and how valuable NBA team, like, or how high of a priority NBA teams are putting on drafting a player like this, 
if they're as skilled as an Alex are, what we're seeing, these guys aren't making it past pick four, you know, in an NBA draft. So I think that that's another thing, another objective that I had with this piece is that where should we be valuing these guys in terms of where they might get selected and where I had Alex are coming into the season before he started playing, I had him like the latter end of the first round. And then I slid him all the way up to four. And then I started thinking, okay, based on this player type article that I that I'm writing and the research that I'm doing on him as a player, should I not value him even more than four? So since I have slid him up to two, based on his skill level, based on the player type, based off of the NBA's, you know, supply and demand effect that that his player type does have in the draft. I mean, I'm in a similar vein. I had him at three in our first No Ceilings big board. And, you know, part of that is just because, again, you know, he's someone who has the size to be a valuable defensive presence, moves like someone who can cover multiple positions, but, you know, also has a little bit, you know, not, again, as you mentioned, not like the Chet Holmgren sort of running the offense through him, right? But he doesn't do what traditional seven-footers do on the offensive end. Just want to sort of touch quickly on the other two players in this category before we move on to the next group. So the Diaz-Graham twins at Pitt, Guillermo and Jorge. And, you know, you mentioned they're the best-kept secrets in the draft space. They're certainly players who I admittedly had not seen very much of before, you know, preparing for this. But anytime you get, you know, near seven-footers who can move really well, there's going to be someone who gives you a look. And I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, give a big shout out to Corey. You know, I feel like I shout him out on every show. Anytime someone reaches out to me and says, hey, what, you know, how did you get get on this player? Usually Corey and Ed are the guys that spur me on to to watch him. So shout out to those two guys. But yeah, Guillermo and Jorge um, playing for Pittsburgh this season. They remind me a lot of Chet Holmgren. And the reason that I don't I have um, Guillermo in my top 60. Jorge is just right outside it, both well within my top 100. The reason I don't have them even higher is because I just I need to see more of them, especially this season. Their sample size last year was so small, but you can see a lot of Chet Holmgren in their game. You know, a lot of dribble pass shoot, uh, very good defensive players. They remind me of the Lopez brothers back in Stanford when they would play alongside each other, both at the four and the five and you and you know that they're only doing that because they want to play together right like when they get on an nba floor they're going to be the exact same position so watching those two uh just very smooth movers smooth operators uh both can pass very well great court vision very long lanky similar build to that of a chet holmgren high iq guys i just they're the best kept secret in the in the draft this season and I, I don't think it's going to last very long. So I'm just trying to help help educate people just like Corey educated me and put their names out there that they they move like these malleable bigs and they probably won't stay hidden very long this year. And it's funny because you have Evan Mobley as one of the highlight players in this category. I was very high on his older brother, Isaiah, his draft year. And they did the same sort of thing of playing together at the four and the five so that they could, you know, get on the floor together at USC. But it's a similar principle. I mean, you look at Isaiah Mobley move and it's like, this is not how a 6'10 dude normally moves, but no, no. Let's move on to the next category here. The jumbo creators, you've got LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Halberton, Cade Cunningham, and then the three players you put in this class for 2024, Matas Buzelis, Cody Williams, Taryn Armstrong. And I want to start with Buzelis because I totally get why you put the other two guys in this category, yeah. but I'm really curious sort of why you have Buzelis in, in this group, because I don't know, you know, playmaking isn't the first thing I think of when I think about his game, but it's, it's fascinating to sort of look at him in the same kind of light as you mentioned in the article as someone like a Hito Turkoglu. Yeah. And I think that that's the, that's where it starts, right? Like he do Turkoglu, uh, not a point guard, right? But he's a guy that can help facilitate the offense. I would probably call him a jumbo creator because very good connective skills, uh, could space the floor as well. And I don't think that jumbo creators, I don't think really any good NBA player just has like a skill anymore. You, you can't see the floor and we'll talk about that more later, but you can't see the floor if you're just good at one thing. And I think Matas Buzelis is going to be a guy that is probably going to get on-ball reps. You know, he's listed anywhere, and I hate this, but he's listed anywhere from like 6'8 to 6'11. 
Uh, I think that he grows every day. Uh, uh, you know, every time he sees the floor, he's an inch taller. But I, I'm with you in a sense, Nick, where he's kind of profiled as like a slasher, scorer, floor spacer, kind of jack of all trades, offensive guy. But the skill set that really pops out to me and what I think that the the Ignite has done a good job doing so far is showcasing a little bit of that playmaking ability. And I do think that as he grows more comfortable uh, playing within that league, I think that the the playmaking is going to be what kind of sets him apart from a lot of other people because this class has a lot of really good scorers, shooters. A lot of guys of a similar build and stature of him play the same position. But I think that the way that he sees the court as a jumbo creator, I, I I think that that's very special. And if I'm like looking at Matas and I'm projecting him out as his best version of himself, the ball in his hand and setting people up, uh, maybe not as your primary initiator, but as like a secondary tertiary guy, much like a Hidu Turkulu for the Inland Magic. I think that that's the kind of player archetype that I envision him succeeding in the most. So another one of the guys in this category, Cody Williams, younger brother of front of the program, Jalen Williams had an incredibly Friend successful rookie year at OKC. And, you know, this is a bit asinine, but it is important to point out Cody's got three inches on his brother. Right. And, you know, especially yeah. when we're talking about you know, sort of being able to be positionally versatile. Right. I mean, being six, eight means there are a lot more niches for you to potentially fill than if you're six, five and, you know, J-Dub spent quite a bit of time at power forward for OKC, mostly because they really had not much size last season with Chad Holmgren missing the year. But, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, giving giving Jalen Williams an extra three inches is a fascinating prospect to me, which is why I've had Cody in my top ten heading into the season. Yeah, I I like Cody a lot. I have him within my top ten as well. I kind of flirted with him being like a, a top five guy, but I kind of have him in that, like, seven to nine range maybe 10 it just depends but um another guy like you said six eight that high divide advantage i I can't emphasize enough how important that is you know when when people say you know is it really that big of a difference if a guy is six six to six eight it absolutely is because like you said nick it makes you more positionally versatile as he gets into that grown man strength that grown man body of his that allows him to experiment a little bit more maybe even play and defend four positions. That's that's immensely valuable. And then you couple that with, uh, you know, the way that he sees the floor, very smooth operator, kind of similar to that of a Jalen Williams, where he uh, kind of lulls the defender sleep a little bit and then can slither his way into the paint, draw multiple defenders. And he's talented enough to finish over some contact, but also has really keen sense of spreading the ball around as well. So, and in this, in this player type, I, I explained that, there are other players that I probably wouldn't classify as a point guard that I do see as jumbo creators, right? Like Josh Giddy, I don't think is the point guard for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Alperen Shangun obviously is the is is the five. A sorry, lot of sorry. For the- Quickly, um, you have to call him future Hall of Famer Alperen Shangun because it pisses oh. Alan Metcalf off. That's the official title for him on this podcast is uh, future Hall of Famer Alperen Shangun. But uh, future, go Hall continue, of, continue. future Hall of Famer. Baby Jokic, Alperen Shangun is go. the jumbo initiator for the Houston Rockets. And I think Cody Williams can do a lot of that too. I don't think that a team is going to draft him and probably run him at the one initially. Uh, but I think that he gives you a lot of that kind of same jumbo creator vibes that you would see from more of these like off ball type of candidates. So, and I'm excited to watch him in Colorado, man. Like Cody is one of these guys that is probably going to quickly become, you know, quote unquote, my guy out of this draft class. He's just, he's that player type that I like so easily fall in love with. And the last guy in this category, someone who probably will get more of traditional point guard minutes. And he's someone who many people at No Ceilings have loved as a prospect for quite some time. Taryn Armstrong now playing for Cairns in the NBL and, Look, I mean, the shooting is a problem. The scoring is a problem. The defense is not exactly fantastic, but oh my goodness, just watching Taron Armstrong sling the ball around is some of the most fun you can have watching prospect films. So he's definitely someone who makes sense for this category. Yeah, I think for the shooting to be a problem, he would have to shoot it. So right now it's kind of there you go. <laughs> so, so there's that. Maybe the shooting is there. He just had not put it up. But in all seriousness, uh, you know, this is a player that has been already covered a couple of times this preseason process by both of the Tylers. 
the defense, I think, has seen a marked improvement, which is a big deal for him, especially if he's not quite the gunner from outside. But one of the best processors and passers in the game of basketball, and I I would say just basketball at large, not pre-NBA, one of the best, you know, floor generals that basketball has to offer. With that being said, he's limited a little bit offensively, but at 6'6", that height of eye advantage is still there. The ball handling is still there. That ball skill and kind of live action dynamic, uh, bending the defense playmaking ability that he has, has a lot of value, man. Like I would would definitely spend a second round pick on him if I'm an NBA team and I got multiple of these second round picks. Like, yeah, sure, bring him in. The worst case scenario, he's just going to be able to help run a practice or something like absolute worst case scenario. But I think that he's so much more than that. I think that there's a way that an NBA team can utilize him in in many capacities, especially like running a second unit or being a trusted third guard. And we see picks get expended on players just like that. So being a jumbo creator helps him out. And if he's going to be a hound on the defensive side of the ball at six, six, you're talking about a guy who can defend maybe the one through three at his position. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned the height of eye advantage on offense, but, you know, being 6'6 also means that, you know, teams can hide him a bit more easily. You know, if he can't deal with the fastest guys in the league, at least being 6'6, you know, you can stick him on the corner on a wing and be pretty much fine with that. Let's move on to the next category here. You've got your total package scorers. And it's funny because if this total package scores category didn't exist, I would be curious why Luka Doncic wasn't in the previous category, but you have him here instead. And I get that. So Luca, Anthony Edwards, Paolo Boncaro. And then for the 2024 class, you have Justin Edwards, Jacoby Walter, and Stefan Castle as your players in this group. So why don't we start with Justin Edwards, who was at the top of most or most of the no ceilings boards heading into the season. Yeah, and it's easy to see why. First off, he's one of the many left-handed shooters that are in this draft class. It's crazy how many lefties we have coming in. He's ahead of the pack. He's number one prospect for me. And he's just, he's listed at what, like six, eight. I mean, yeah. just a big, long, big, long, strong body has to grow into his frame a little bit, but it looks like he's going to be able to support the extra pounds. He's already like a very smooth glider, kind of deceptively fast. Like you could see on the flirt that he's fast, but it kind of sneaks up on you a little bit. And his ability to shoot for multiple levels on the floor. I mean, we're going to talk about that with the rest of these guys. That's, that's what the, the total package score means, right? Like someone who you can expect to operate with the ball in their hands, pull up uh, with a mid-range game, finish in traffic, you know, be able to catch and shoot. You know, any any role offensively to where you have to put the ball in the hoop, like that's what these guys do. And I think that's what Justin Edwards' profile is the best at. And obviously, you know, each NBA draft class is lucky to produce, you know, one some of them we see two or three. And sometimes you can get these guys a little bit later in the draft too, and they kind of sneak up on you. Like I would say that Shea Gilgis-Alexander now is a is a total package scorer. I would say Franz Wagner is a total package scorer for the Orlando Magic, like being able to do all the things that he can do for multiple areas on the floor. I would classify him within this group too. And you're talking about guys taken outside of the top five. And I think that that's where some of these evaluations – might have been missed, right? Like you look at some of the things that these guys can't do. And we talk about, you know, having these well-rounded games on the defensive side of the ball or, you know, as playmakers, uh, things of that nature. But if you got the size that some of these guys do at like say six, eight, like Justin Edwards, and you're extremely talented at putting the ball in the cup and you have the athleticism that it takes to succeed in the NBA, like I believe Justin Edwards does, you're talking about a total package score and every NBA team is looking for a player like this. And you mentioned him at the top of the article as having fallen off the list from being a bit too early draft class wise, but by far my biggest miss as an evaluator was Jason Tatum. And the main reason behind that is I wasn't worried about his ability to put up shots, but I was worried about his ability to have their shots go in. Right. And, you know, as it turns out, I was way too worried about him being too mid range happy at Duke. You know, he got to the NBA and immediately stretched out his range you know, to three point range. It's not like he didn't shoot threes at Duke, but you know, he wasn't a spectacularly efficient scorer from there. Like he very quickly became in the NBA. And, you know, when you combine his ability to get to the rim with that shooting touch, you know, 
you get someone who's an all NBA player and who makes me look like an idiot as an evaluator. Not that he's the only one, you know, it's pretty easy to make me look like an idiot, but Hey, you know, he, he certainly did the job there, but I am curious about Jacoby Walter because he's someone who, as you mentioned in the piece is pretty polarizing as a prospect, but I mean, if it all works for him, you know, he could be someone who makes me look as foolish as Jason Tatum did if I'm not high enough on him. Well, yeah. So I'm actually, you know, preparing for future shows uh, that we that we do, uh, Maxwell and I, and we're going to be talking about the freshman here soon. And I went back and looked at Jacoby Walter and I definitely get the reservations, right? Like some of the shot selection is a little bit questionable, right? Uh, I, I look at he's like a ball of clay right now. I, I see the confidence that he has at every level. Uh, the the percentages aren't aren't bad from three. Uh, the percentages from the free throw line are very encouraging. The the touch on his shot looks great. He's kind of he's kind of deceptively twitchy. Uh, you know, going left to right and being able to get by, past the defender. He's got great ball skill, which is another thing that these total package scores need to have. Is they need to have the ball on the string. And I think Jacoby Walter has that ability as well. He's listed at 6'5". I don't know how you feel about it when you go back and watch him, but he's like spilling over at 6'5". It's like if 6'5 was a cup, it's like pouring over the edges. He's he's a huge 6'5". And I just think that he's so comfortable with the ball in his hand, that combo guard ability that he has. And I mean that in a good way. You know, I think combo guard is uh, suddenly not becoming a backhanded compliment, but I do look at the ball skill, the ability that he has to get the the shot up for multiple levels. I think the float game looks nice. And I think that the commitment to Baylor, he's taken his uh, draft process very seriously because Baylor just puts up pro guards that that's, we see that, you know, with Keontae George recently. And now we got an even bigger guard with just as good a ball skill and someone who's very confident in shot. I, I think that he has the makings to be a total package scorer. Um, just kind of raw right now in the early going. And the last player you have on this list, Stefan Castle of UConn. I'm curious about this. I definitely, I mean, he's, you know, very smooth out there, but I sort of fell in love more with his passing than his scoring. So I'm fascinated that you have him in this category rather than the previous one. That was one that I'm kind of like, I could really put him in either one. And I just found it, you know, I, I found that the offense is going to come really easy to him. He's got a very mature game. And I think, you know, looking at an example like a Luka Doncic, right, where he is listed as a total package scorer, but also probably someone that can create. And that's what we start seeing with these guys eventually, right? Like if you can have an offense, like if you're a one-man offense as a scorer, eventually the next progression that you're going to take is as a playmaker. Like you mentioned a Jason Tatum. I look at him now. He's – he facilitates a lot of the offense now. And that wasn't something that I think many of us had projected, you know, in his college days at Duke either. Right. Yeah, I certainly didn't. Right. And, and I, I think it's very elementary for me to sit here to say that like, if you can see the entire floor and you can get past the entire defense and, and put the ball up, like, why can't you do that to the side to an open teammate? Right. So I, I think it might be that simple. And I think, Stephon Castle, I think it might be simple for some of these guys, definitely not for me. But I think Stephon Castle is definitely one of these guys to where I could see him kind of going out and getting his a little bit more as an offensive player. The commitment to UConn, I think, will help kind of help enforce that like team first mentality that uh that they typically promote there. But I think when the NBA team gets him at his size, they're gonna want to let him kind of be a one-man offense as a scorer, but definitely. I, I don't think that he's a, a ball hog by any means. And I don't think any of these total package scores are, are sometimes the wrong thing that some of these players can do is not shoot because they're just that good at it. Right. And I think that castle is going to be one of those players to where again, can get the ball uh, on a string can get past, you know, the initial defender can draw the attention of multiple defenders can get to the free throw line, can hit the open man. And, very smooth operator, very mature game. That's the one word that stands out to me when I watch him is just his maturity. Well, you mentioned letting those shots fly. So let's move on to the next category here, your floor spacing guards. And so prior examples, Anthony Simons, Tyler Hero, Desmond Bain, all make a lot of sense. All guys who are Mm -hmm. primarily touted for their shooting. And the three prospects you have in this category, you have two returning players and one freshman. So 
Riley Kugel, Milo Suzanne, and Elliot Cadeau. And Riley Kugel is someone who is really interesting to me. I don't think anyone surprised me more by exiting the draft process last season than Riley Kugel, especially because he got really hot towards the end of the season, right? And usually those yeah. are the kinds of players who tend to declare and take advantage of that hot stretch towards the end of the season. But clearly Kugel believes that, no, actually the hot stretch was just me getting the opportunity and filling that role. And now I'm going to, you know, go out there for my sophomore year and just do that the whole year rather than the last month and a half of the season. But it'll be interesting to see how that goes because I've mentioned time and time again on here that I'm a partial free throw truther and Kugel is someone yeah. who, even though he was really effective from three point range, he struggled a bit from the line and given how much variance there can be in three point shooting, you know, that's, that's a concern for me, but the shot is really pretty and he gets it off pretty easily. And he's bigger than the other two guys in this category as well, which also helps, but I am very interested to see what happens with Riley Kugel's draft stock this season, because if he plays like he did the last month and a half of the year, all season, then he's easily a top 10 pick. And if some of the inconsistencies that I'm slightly concerned about come through, then I'm not sure where he ends up on draft boards. And I think it's important just to kind of preface this, that I said that one skill doesn't get you NBA success anymore. And the floor spacing guards, I really want to emphasize that I don't think that these guys are only going to be able to shoot. As a matter of fact, I don't think that you can succeed if all you can do is shoot. Like longer the day, long gone are the days of Jason Capono, Matt Carroll, Anthony Morrow, players like that, right? So Riley Kugel, I do believe, is going to be at his best spacing the floor for these jumbo creators that we see, right? Like jumbo creators are going to be like your engines of an offense. What best complements those type of players? Your floor spacing guards, right? You got to have someone that they can run the pick and roll with, obviously, like say a malleable big. But then you also got to have these floor spacing guards that really open up their driving lanes. And I think Riley Kugel is a guy that is respected from from deep. We saw that all year long last year. And I think that he's going to also be feared because if you hard close him out, he's going to be able to get past you and make you pay, right? So he's a smart basketball player. I think that he's going to be in, in prime candidacy for like the Ben Matherin or Jay Nivey award, right? Where could have probably been drafted late first round, early second round. If they would have went out as freshmen, they come back for their sophomore season. Then you're looking at them as like top 10 talent. So Riley Kugel is probably next in line for something like that for me. And the three point shooting is going to be something that I'm going to be monitoring for him all season long, because I think that that's going to be like the entry level uh, skill that you have to have. If you're not going to be, uh, a primary creator, you got to make life easy on your superstars. And Kugel has a nice projectable shot, in my opinion. And I'm a big fan of him, big fan of watching that Florida team at large. There's a lot of talented studs on that team. But yeah, I have Kugel as a top 10 guy, Nick. I don't know how you feel about him coming in, but I think that he's he's right in there for me. I believe I had him exactly at 10. <laughs> yeah, at 10 is still top 10. So there you go. Exactly. There you go. So the next two guys, it's interesting. Um, with Kugel, you know, he's got the size to be a two, potentially. These two guys, Milo Suzanne and Elliot Cadeau, based purely on their size, they're pretty much going to be stuck at the one. And so I think yeah. the question is, you know, can they do enough offensively outside of just being four spacers? And I don't know. I mean, with Cadeau, you know, he's someone, as you mentioned, could be one of the most divisive freshmen in the class this season. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I'm fascinated to see what his defense looks like more than anything else, because, you know, doing my, you know, once a podcast Kings player mentioned, right, if you defend like Davion Mitchell, you can be six one and still have a place in the NBA. Yeah. But, you know, if you can't defend like that, you really have to be not only a solid pick and roll playmaker, but also someone who can shoot the absolute cover off the ball. And you know, with Cadeau, I think the shot's going to be there. I, you know, certainly seems like that's what you, you were saying in the in the piece that I think the shot's going to be there. And it seems like you agree with me there. The question is just, can he do enough else? And with Uzan, I mean, you know, he can, he can run an offense pretty well. And I think yeah. he's going to have to, to you know have a long-term role in the NBA, even with, you know, how good of a shooter he was and, you know, hopefully will be going forward. Yeah. And Oklahoma's got a good backcourt this year. So I think that he's going to be able to, uh, kind of split some ball handling roles a little bit, but I'm excited for both of them. And I write about in the piece that like with the 
the continuous, you know, you know, search for a jumbo creator on a team that we're starting to see what we would call traditional size point guards being kind of pushed more to an off ball role, right? Like Chris Paul has an incredible stellar reputation as an orchestrator. And even at his size was able to do crazy things, mainly because he can defend, you know, like nobody else on the floor. And then eventually as he started being more of a complimentary player to, you know, your James Harden's of the world is because he was a reliable shooter. You know, he kind of always had that pull up midi game for a little bit while he was working those pick and rolls with the Tyson Chandler, being able to get to the elbow and hit his patented elbow midi. He extended that range out to the three point line because you, you kind of have to, if you're going to be that size. So um, if you're under that six, four mark, you better be able to shoot the lights out of the ball, which is what I project that who's on and what Cadeau are going to be able to do. And if you can't do that, like if you got to be like Scoot Henderson, like that's the threshold athletically that you have to be. If you're, if you're going to be kind of that under six foot four, size you got to be a freak of nature ball handler athlete can jump over anybody on the court and like i said with with your jumbo creators like even what we see with dallas Kyrie irving kind of playing more of a complimentary role and he's kind of under that six foot four mark he's a heck of a three-point shooter but can still have the offense go through him as like a secondary uh play initiator of source on that roster so that's what I think Uzan and Kado are going to have to get to, right? Like be able to be trusted to facilitate some offense, but you got to make life easier for the bigger guys on your team. And the last category here, the most frequently selected player type with the highest success rate, as you mentioned in the article, the players that you dubbed utility forwards. And, yeah, you know, this sort of goes back to, you know, what we were talking about right at the very top of the podcast of, you know, this sort of plotting seven footer has been pushed out of the league and you get some of these, you know, sort of freak of nature seven footers who can move like a Chet Holmgren or like an Alex Saar in this class. But what you're seeing more and more is, you know, the guys who, as you mentioned, the six, four and under guys are sort of getting pushed towards the side. The non-mobile seven footers are getting pushed to the side. And what you're getting instead are a ton of guys in the six, seven to six, 10 range who can do a lot of different things, who can, you know, be prime defensive playmaker types like Herb Jones and Jaden McDaniels who can, you know, potentially be small ball fives and be, you know, more sort of facilitator types like a Grant Williams, as you mentioned. And this is the kind of player where, you know, again, given that they're utility forwards, right, you can slot them in pretty much everywhere. I mean, you know, you mentioned Franz Wagner, who, you know, he's definitely developing as a total package scorer, but his sort of projection coming into the NBA was more of this utility forward type. And, you know, he's a 6'10 dude who spent some time at the two, right? You know, that's the kind of thing that yeah. if you have a lineup full of utility forwards, you throw out a lot of players like that, you know, similar size can switch across positions. And if you have two or three of those guys, then, you know, whoever your stars are, you can just sort of slot those three utility forwards in around them and have things work pretty well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Players can graduate, I think, from from one player type to another. And I think that that's another thing that you look at for these five-year trajectories is where did these guys kind of start out? What was their introductory role? And then, you know, were you able to add more to that? And I think that kind of helps us as evaluators be able to look at kind of these uh, A to B to C trajectories for some of these guys. Uh, but yeah, utility forwards are always in vogue, and I, I think that it's something that teams – have to have you need these complimentary players guys that are going to step in do a lot of the dirty work on the on on the boards on the defensive side of the ball you would like to see them space the floor i think that's what you kind of see from these like top tier guys as utility forwards you know someone who can just maybe have one offensive skill to make them serviceable that way they're not just you know serving as an offensive detriment to their team but you really want these guys to to do all the dirty work on your team. And you see these guys, they, they get contract extensions. They, they oftentimes get paid more from another team because of what they bring to an organization. Like say what a, uh, a Bruce Brown just got for the Indiana Pacers. Right. Uh, I would probably even classify him as utility forward. Although he plays backup point guard at, at times for Denver last year, because he just, he covers so much ground defensively. He rebounds, he sets screens, He's just a grit and grind guy. And, and that's what I think that you're looking at with these types of players. 
Yeah, so let's start with the three guys you have in this category. So we have two sort of returners-ish in funny ways, um, and then freshman Omaha Bilyeu out of Iowa State. So let's start with Bilyeu. I mean, you know, I get why you put him in this category, but why don't you sort of talk through why he ended up in this group? I just think that he is so good at a bunch of different things that I don't think offensively he is going to be a guy that you look at as like a uh, a polished scorer, so to speak. I think that he's going to kind of have a more rugged, aggressive type game. Uh, the frame lends itself to being more of a utility for it at, you know, say 6'9", what about 215, 220, something of that nature. A uh, willing screen setter, willing rebounder, willing cutter, uh, very complimentary offensive player. And I think that the defense is going to be what, what makes it for him, you know, playing at Iowa State, he's you're probably going to see him all over the floor, you know, and I think with the the athleticism, the energy, the hustle, the grit, the fire that he plays with, it's like the epitome of what you want in a utility forward. And another guy in this category, Bobby Clintman, who, you know, had an interesting draft process last season. Let's just leave it at that. But, you know, now he's yeah. in the NBL with Cairns and had some good flashes, had some tougher flashes over the first couple games for Cairns. But, I mean, you know, at 6'10", who can move the way he does, you know, pretty good off-ball instincts, right? This is someone who you can slot in at the three or the four. And, you know, as long as he's sort of plugging and playing on the offensive end, you know, he's someone who is very efficient around the basket, right? You know, he has a lot of different, you know, this is something I say a lot on this particular podcast, but he has a lot of different avenues to play in time, right? And I think yeah. that's sort of the staple of this category is, you know, maybe someone's not the best shooter or, you know, maybe they're not the best passer or, you know, maybe they their defensive effort sort of waxes and wanes, right? But as long as you've got, you know, solidity across a number of different skill sets, if you've got that sort of, you know, 6'10 size, right, there's going to be a role for you somewhere as long as you can, you know, competently do something at both ends of the floor. Yeah, and I think defensively is where he's going to get his bread buttered in the NBA. And we're starting to see him grow more comfortable in the NBA. And Nick, something I was actually talking to Maxwell about on our show recently is that, it's crazy how many different different types of basketball play styles that Bobby has had to adapt to in just a short amount of time. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was on the the Sweden national team, and then he goes to play at Sunrise Christian and you know in Kansas, <laughs> United States, and then he goes to play ACC basketball at Wake Forest, and now he's playing in the NBL. I mean, you're talking about a guy who has sampled from a number of different leagues, a number of different positional asks that he's had to meet. And I think that lends it to the utility forward spot, right? Like a guy who can play the three and the four, you know, maybe he at his absolute best, he can kind of Jeff Green it and play some small ball five uh, and, and a guy who can switch onto a number of different positions. The three point shot hasn't been there. I think that it's going to get better. Uh, but namely, I, I think that he's going to be able to be like an ancillary playmaker. You know, the, the playmaking that he showed at Wake, what he's starting to show now. Uh, for Karens, I think that that's going to lend him an offensive skill set that he'll be very good at. And not to mention his cutting, his off-ball stuff, even in the early going where the offense wasn't necessarily, uh, I would say, like at a respectable level of his first couple games, the the off-ball stuff still really popped. And defensively, I think that he's a fascinating player to develop. And the last player you have in this category, Bob Miller, I think that no, I don't think. I know that if I said how I felt about the whole Bobby Miller saga last season, that there would be men in suits knocking at my door within the hour, but I won't go there because I would rather not have men in suits knocking at my door within the hour. But, you know, with Miller, he's someone who has shown serious flashes offensively, but could not put it together consistently, especially last season at Florida State. And, you know, Again, that was a saga that I don't think anybody particularly needs to relive. But, you know, this year he'll have a full season, one hopes, yep. right? And I think ultimately it's going to be a similar sort of deal to Clintman where with Baba Miller, he's going to, you know, make his money at the NBA level as a defensive player. And the question is just, can he do enough on the offensive end? And, you know, he's shown flashes of being someone who can have the ball in his hands, but the shooting was not there last season to the degree that it needed to yeah. be. And you know, ultimately, again, it's exactly as you said, right? Like these guys who have the size and the mobility to be exceptional defensive players, 
if they can't do enough on the offensive end, they're just not going to get the minutes that they need to develop. Yeah, he's going to be one of the more interesting case studies for this season, and I'm willing to just kind of throw last season out because yeah, it was just here. a lot. That was just a lot, man. Uh, I think with a full off season, being able to like do stuff with the team instead of just showing up and playing high level ACC basketball and then hoping for the best, probably not the best foolproof plan, but that's the cards that he had dealt to him, unfortunately, for reasons that don't need to be really relitigated for both of our sanities, Nick. But I think defensively, there's a lot to be enticed by, which is like the foundation of these utility forwards, you know, uh, being able to switch, I, I think the on-ball stuff is going to be very interesting. With Florida State's team, though, I don't know how much on-ball reps he's going to get, which kind of makes me curious. Like, is he just going to be like a slasher? Is he going to is he going to add to that floor spacing ability? It's going to be interesting, but I think the best version of himself kind of lends lends me to think that he's going to be a high level utility forward, and it it all starts on the defensive side for him, which is. I think is already quite impressive. All right. Anything else you want to go over here before we wrap this one up? Uh, No, sir. Just uh, thank you for the interest in having me on. I think these, like you mentioned, these hypothetical type pieces, uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. It's fun to kind of step away from the more interview film breakdown based stuff and to say, Hey, I wonder what is going to be the most successful in the draft and how do I kind of base my board and my projections on that? All right. Well, he is Stephen Glassbee. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen G Hoops. And you can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. And you can also listen to him now on the Draft Sickos podcast coming out every week on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson. And you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback on the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.